Saya Bogar, a UC Berkeley graduate student in public health, will make the short walk across the stage to receive her master's degree. For Bogar, a native of war-torn Somalia, the event will mark a joyous leap in a long and difficult journey. You're listening to the Berkeley News Podcast. I'm Ann Bryce. My mom is very, very practical. She told me over and over and over, every single evening, if you hear anything, run straight home. Straight, straight home. Five-year-old Saya lived in Mogadishu, the capital of Somalia. It was the late 1990s. And although the country had been in a civil war since the early part of the decade, Saya knew her home to be peaceful. You know, the community raises all the children, so... You can go to anyone's house and have food or go to anyone's house and hang out. It was a very safe, comfortable environment. But there had been rumors that violence might break out, so the family had a game plan. Her father had taken Saya's two older brothers to New York, where he had worked for the past six months as a cab driver. Soon he would be back with visas, so the whole family could move to the U.S., One afternoon, Saya was walking to the local gelato shop with her aunt, hand-in-hand hand with her cousin and best friend, Sara. She also had three brothers, so we just clicked. Her name was Sara, and I'm Saya, so we were just like sisters, in a sense, and me and my parents said we were inseparable. But their walk was cut short. And I heard all of these shouting, and then I started hearing screaming, and then I heard these loud bang. And I didn't know at the time, that's, that's a gunshot. I'd never heard a gun before. Saya tried to pull her cousin in her direction, but their hands dropped. And hearing her mother's voice in her head, she sprinted home without looking back. And then when I get home, my mom's packing, you know, just like whatever she can. And my brother is like three and a half, so he's a handful. And he doesn't know what's going on. He's crying. Her mom used a long cloth to strap her son to her chest so she could carry him more easily. Saya grabbed a bag and the family took off. We start running in the opposite direction. But I told my mom, I was like grabbing her skirt, and I was like, hey, you know, Sara and, you know, auntie, they're still, they're at their house, and the house was just right around the other side. So my, but my mom was like, we can't stop. We can't stop. You got to think about, you know, us and like, but I was a little kid, so I didn't really, didn't really click the danger of the situation. So Saya turned around and ran away from her mother toward Sada's house. She didn't notice at first, so I was already pretty far by the time she noticed I wasn't right behind her. So she turned around, and she couldn't, like, scream and shout out because you didn't want to bring attention, so she ran after me. And I, I saw my, my cousin's house, and I'm kind of running around, but I, I, start, I hear commotion, and... I walk, come closer behind the house, and I, I see the window, and I look inside the window, and there's a bunch of men in the house. And my aunt is on the ground, and Sarah's in the corner crying, and, yeah, my mom catches up to me right when I'm looking in the window. And... uh yeah, my mom knew what was going on, but I didn't, I didn't know. I just knew something bad was happening. 
and I, my mom was trying to pull me away from the window and I was just like we gotta we gotta get him we gotta get him we gotta help him we gotta save him and my mom was like there's nothing we can do there's nothing we can do and then all of a sudden I hear gunshot in the house and I look back over my shoulder and my uncle is on the ground and they shot him in the head and we took off. And there was no way to know that the next two years, a time when surviving required strengths she didn't know she had, would also set Saya on a path to tackle some of the world's biggest medical problems. would usually go at night and then during the day we would find a place to sleep because you don't want to stand out too much and we traveled like that for two weeks people would stop and like help us you know um, give us food water but we would just always go at night after two weeks, Saya and her family crossed the border into Nairobi, Kenya, where the government had set up refugee camps for Somalis fleeing the civil war. It was, it was dirty. It smelled. It was poop, you know, in the water. Whenever it rained, you know, you'd, you'd have to try to find, like, anything that's plastic or, like, garbage bags or stuff to kind of put on the ground because it was mud. And my mom was ill constantly, just in and out of sickness. She, it was hard for her to get up. It was hard for her to move. Um, later on, I found out she had multiple different, like, diarrheal infections, um, one of which was Shigella, because she had it at the time of departure, um, which is a killer. You know, you die. And a lot of people died from illness in the camps. Sometimes she would see Red Cross workers come into the camp. They might set up a booth to treat basic medical ailments. They would sometimes drop off some food. But Saya says because she was so small, it was hard to get the help she needed. People are walking away with multiple bundles or, you know, stealing each other's bundles. Or maybe you have it in your place and then someone sees you have it and then comes and steals it from you. And if you don't let it go, they'll kill you. No one's helping. So you can drop off whatever you want, but if there is not police or someone or security to help ensure that these people are actually take the, these things home, then what are you really doing? You're just causing more chaos. I just avoided it at all costs. So at six years old, Saya became the sole provider for her sick mom and her three-year-old brother. During the day, she would stand guard, yelling and making noise when anyone walked by who might be looking to take advantage of a vulnerable woman and kids. I would cover her with whatever I could find, garbage, just make her look like a pile of garbage. And Saya would take her toddler brother and walk through the back alleys of Nairobi, collecting food thrown out by restaurants. Some days I wouldn't have anything. Um, some days I would come back and I'd have like two loaves of bread that, you know, this baker gave me. Those days, I remember I would come back with just, I felt like the king of the world. I was just like, no one can stop me. <laughs> Saya was wary and stuck to herself. And she thinks it's what got her through, that she didn't trust anyone but herself. You know, I would kind of look inside someone's eyes 
and if I felt, you know, there's not really a real good person in there. The eyes don't lie. I remember there was one situation where I was out by myself um, in the early evening, and I was going through the alleys, and I was like kind of digging through things, and there was this man who saw me and called me over, and I was like, nope, no thanks. And then he pulled out this like tray of like meats, and it just it looked so good, it smelled so good. And he was like, you can have this, you know, you can take it home. And, you know, he was like, who do you live with? You know, things like that. And then, I don't know, I just, like, I got a little bit closer because I just wanted to, like, smell the food a little bit more and kind of, like, see him. But right when I looked in his eyes, I was just like, I can't trust you. So I ran. I booked it in the other direction. <laughs> ran as fast as I could. I didn't bring home food that day, but... I, and I didn't tell my mom that I, there was someone with food because she would get mad. But I was just like, I don't trust it. So it's not worth the risk. I'd rather be hungry than not come home. The time just went by, I feel like, the slowest in my entire life. Later, um, in the camp, someone came by and said, there's someone looking for you. And I was like, who, you know? She'd been on her own for so long that the memory of her father had faded. But her mother was hopeful. She was like, who, is it, is it Omar? And they're like, yeah! <laughs> He'd been looking for them since they fled Mogadishu. Every day, sometimes multiple times a day, he would call around to different refugee sites near Somalia, asking if his wife and two children were registered at one of the camps. But because the sites were understaffed and overfull, it took two years for someone to find his family's names on the list. Soon after he found them, he sent them airline tickets and visas, and they flew to New York. And we landed in New York. <laughs> and my father was at the airport with my older brothers. I was anorexic. I was extremely malnourished. Same with my brother, same with my mother. We're all sickly. And my brothers and my father were just like so big and hearty. And I was just like, what? This is another world. In the camp, Saya had developed a bad case of asthma. And doctors said she needed to live in a warmer climate or she might die. So her parents scraped together enough money for a beat-up car, loaded in their four kids, and moved to Arizona. Her dad chose a small apartment in the suburbs of Phoenix. He wanted us to have a good chance at a good education, and for him, a good education is wherever the white kids go to school. <laughs> but Saya, who was now seven, was different from her classmates. She was the only kid with dark skin at her elementary school, and she'd experienced a lot of trauma, and she found it hard to connect to kids her own age. I had done so much living in my few years of life that it was really hard for me to play with the other kids. So I didn't have a lot of friends and I was definitely bullied a lot. Instead of disciplining the bullies, the school administration had Saya sit in the nurse's office during recess, where she spent a lot of time reading. Like I was killing books left and right because that was, it was the best way to escape Every day, she'd walk to the library after school, check out a stack of books, go home, lock her bedroom door, and read. 
but in eighth grade, she caught a break. Her parents bought a house in Maricopa, a city far enough from Phoenix that Saya could reinvent herself. I got to be in a school where no one knew me. No one knew my past. I could make my own story. I could make my own reality. And I did. So I used that year just to open up more, to talk. Saya Bogar always knew that getting an education was the way she was going to have opportunity. As she got closer to high school graduation, she wanted to leave Arizona and make a fresh start. So I had big dreams. I was like, well, I'm going to go out of state. I'm going to leave. I don't want to be here anymore. I want a new life. That's when her mom told her she didn't have a social security number. It had been too expensive for her family to apply for green cards for all of the kids. Her older brothers already had them because they needed them to get jobs. But her parents hadn't gotten around to it for Saya yet. So she had two options. She could apply for a green card and wait three years, then apply for colleges out of state. Or she could transfer her high school transcripts to an Arizona school without any questions being asked. So I decided I wanted to go to school. I didn't want to take time off. I felt like school is what I love and that's what I'm going to do. At Arizona State University, Bogar majored in genetics and cellular development. She wanted to understand the rampant sickness she saw in the refugee camp. I've always been, as since a child, just seeing people getting sick, seeing, you know, things you don't even see that can kill even more indiscriminately than a person could, um, fascinated me. So I wanted to learn how it works. How does our how does our body work? You know, how do our how, what are our defense systems? How do things enter? How do they manipulate our body to, to use our body against us to kill us and to kill others? After she graduated with a bachelor's in science, she wanted to know more. So she applied to UC Berkeley's master's program in public health and started in 2015. She received a full fellowship from the School of Public Health that paid for her tuition and gave her a stipend to pay her rent. And coming from needing to work 40 hours to pay tuition... Coming from, you know, reading in the dark in my parents' place, it was just like, wow, Berkeley, one of the top schools in the entire world, wants me. During her time at Berkeley, Bogar started to investigate some of the infectious diseases that afflicted those living in the refugee camp in Nairobi. Many of the illnesses were diarrheal infections. So, so many now I know. But just things like people dying just from too much diarrhea which happens all the time in developing countries. It's hard to tell what it was. As part of her research, Bogar traveled to Bangladesh, where she studied at the International Center for Diarrheal Disease Research, an institute committed to solving public health problems facing low- and middle-income countries through innovative scientific research. Say I worked at the center's clinic, where she saw people with a number of diarrheal infections, including cholera. I, that's why I was so excited to go to that center and just be able to see how they work and be able to meet the patients who wait in line all day in the heat to have their children or their you know, parents or to be looked at. In America or in any developed country, you'll be, you would be fine, you know, if you have diarrhea, well, you know, eat some bread and then have a Gatorade or, you know, something like that and you'll be okay. Um, but if you're already malnourished, and then you get a diarrheal um, illness, and you don't really have access to a lot of water um, or food, then you die. And it's like the number one killer of children, especially. 
In Bangladesh, says Bogar, as in a lot of developing countries, patients are prescribed antibiotics without being tested for their sickness. She says you can even buy antibiotics at the local corner store. In America, it's a huge worry, you know, like with MRSA and, you know, all of these other um, infections that are, can't even be treated by antibiotics anymore. And the biggest fear is in the future, there's definitely going to be a day where antibiotics don't work anymore. This is definitely a problem that's going to be for the entire world. And now, two years later, she's about to graduate with a master's in public health with a focus on infectious diseases and vaccinology. Her dream is to be a doctor, but she doesn't have citizenship yet. She has a green card, so legally she can do anything but vote, and next year she's eligible to apply for citizenship. That's when she also plans to apply for medical school. No, I'm hopeful that I'll be able to get citizenship. I honestly... I think that's all I can do. I think if I try to think about the possibility that I won't, I think it just hurts too much to think about that because it's something I can't control, you know? So I just got to do everything on my part. And if it happens, yes. If it doesn't, well, I'll keep waiting, you know? But I want to be a doctor. So it doesn't matter how old I am. Doctor's a doctor's a doctor, so (laughs) I'll make it happen, no matter what. Bogar is now engaged to a man who looks at her with eyes she can trust. She and Shane met as undergraduates in Arizona. But immediately I looked in his eyes and I just felt like this kind of warmth that I actually hadn't seen in anyone else other than my father. And... I was just like, whoa, I was taken aback by that. And you know how guys will come up and be like, oh, you know, you look good, you know, it's other garbage. But he just shook my hand. (laughs) And he was like, I don't want to sound weird, but I saw you a few weeks ago on campus, and I just wanted to come over and introduce myself. And I was like, that is a very genuine thing to say. And his eyes matched, and I was like, wait, I'm interested. (laughs) Shane grew up in a poor part of Phoenix with an alcoholic dad and a single mom. And now he works as a financial advisor for a firm in Berkeley. Sometimes the best people, you know, they come from the worst situations um, because it really tests you, like your soul, like your character, it tests you. So if you're able to be tested over and over and over and you make the right choice each time, Yeah. She says being at Berkeley and having the support of a fellowship has allowed her to relax in a way that she couldn't before. I feel like I've grown up so much during these two years and, like, really come into my own. And just my confidence has grown, and I'm just so happy. I'm so happy. She's a graduate mentor for a program called Getting Into Graduate School, which helps underrepresented undergraduate students apply to graduate programs. She's worked with three young women, all of whom have been accepted to their top schools. Just like that, it just feels like, life feels good, you know, and I haven't needed to worry about anything, like truly worry about anything. I can just have normal problems, right? Like, What do I want to do after graduation? After she graduates with the master's in public health, Bogar is looking to work for a nonprofit that helps people who need it. 
Maybe an organization that helps families find affordable housing or health care. You know, I'm sure I'm not going to be rich from it, but rich in soul, right? So that's, that's what I would love to do. For Berkeley News, I'm Ann Bryce.